Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Baldoyan. This week's guest is a good friend of mine, Sarah Troxel. Uh, Sarah manages the bar program for two of Houston's most exciting restaurants, Nobis and the Toasted Coconut. Personally, some of my favorite spots in the entire city. I used to run a wine bar close to them, so when I'd get off my shift, I'd head over to one of the two for a late night slice of pie, or a shot of mezcal, or a shot of amaro, or maybe all three. I mean, depends on how shitty the shift was, who's to say? Those of you that have been to these spots know that the cocktails are delicious and that Sarah imbues the entire bar with the right amount of whimsy. But before Sarah was slinging martinis, she was a classically trained cook. It was only after culinary school and years of working in kitchens that she really found her calling behind the bar. And her real passion within the bar is tiki. It's this tropical subculture in the beverage world that incorporates juices, rums, and often flamboyant garnishes and serving vessels. Unlike almost anything else in the bar world, tiki bars and cocktails have this fantastical element that's kind of hard to pin down. It's like they have this transportive power. They, you walk into a tiki bar and you feel like you're going into a whole nother world. Um, and I wanted to talk to Sarah about the identity of tiki, the history of rum, and the way that her cooking influences her bartending. Sarah also competes nationally in the nonprofit Speed Rack, which highlights women in the cocktail industry. Towards the end of our conversation, we talk about how Speed Rack as a competition has not only made her a more technically proficient bartender, but also a more vocal supporter of women in the Houston bartending community. Sarah is one of the easiest people to talk to, and I'm really excited for you to hear our conversation, so we'll jump right in. Sarah, how are you? Cool. I'm so good. How are you? I'm doing well, just hanging out, enjoying the sunshine. I think it's supposed to thunderstorm later today, so. I know. I feel like we've been kind of lucky having a little extra time off during the spring because it's like the best time to be outside right now before it gets too hot. Yeah, I mean, in here in Houston, right, like the best weather we have is March and April. Yeah, like even though the world is kind of dumpster firing around us, there's it's at least nice to like have a, otherwise we wouldn't have a few extra minutes to get outside, I don't think. So. I feel like you're really good about getting outside when you can. Like you'll do like day trips to like Galveston and stuff, right? I'll, every week during the summer. Really? Pretty much. As long as there's not like I have some other obligations for work or whatever, but pretty much at least one of our days off, we're going to Galveston, Bolivar, uh, somewhere to the beach for sure. For someone like me that hasn't been spent much time in Galveston or gone to many other beaches, give me the sales pitch on why you should go down there. So for me, Galveston gets such a bad rap, especially in the city, but it's because it's not the bluest like Caribbean turquoise waters. I get it, but it is an ocean. It is a beach. It is like so much history in Texas. And I just love it there for so for so many reasons. But like for me, I'm definitely a water baby. And like, sure, the water can be a little brown at times, but it is <laughs> cold. It's refreshing. There's sea glass, there's seashells, there's tons of wildlife, birds, there's a super awesome state park, there's a museum where you can go on a tall ship, which is also like I'm a kind of nerd, a nerd about sailboats, and like all these things. There's rainy day activities. It's not even just the beach. You can take a ferry to Bolivar for free. It's public transportation. You get in line and drive your boat um, up onto this ferry. It's like a 20 minute to the to the peninsula. I 100% of the time see dolphins. 
so many birds, all these cool like barges and oil tankers and car carriers. And like, I'm kind of a nerd about all of this stuff. I really love that's awesome. The ocean and the beach and ships and boats and whatever. So um, we just love it. Hell yeah. When you go down there, is there like a favorite restaurant or bar that you like to check out? So for sure, favorite bar, zero questions is Daiquiri Timeout. It's kind of like right behind the strand. It's like walking distance from kind of like the shops and the kind of like a little bit touristy area um, downtown Galveston, but they do awesome craft cocktails, Mai Tais, one of the best strawberry frozen daiquiris I've had in my entire life. Um, and like Brad, Brad worked at Johnny's Johnny's for a really long time before he uh, moved down to Galveston. I actually didn't really know him when he was at Johnny's. I've only known him to be the owner of DTO, but he's doing banana infused Magdalena rum, which is one of my favorite things. I don't know. Exactly, I don't know if he's like rotovapping it. I forget, but he's like doing some crazy like banana infusion and it's like served chilled and it's like the perfect sidecar to a strawberry daiquiri or a pina colada. Um, I could go on and on, but they have done a really good job about bridging like craft cocktails and like the local Galvestonians kind of together because, you know, not everyone want, in Galveston is necessarily here for like the super conceptualized crazy ingredients and cocktails, but he's done a really good job about having a little bit of both ends of the spectrum. Um, and the team there is awesome. Yeah, I, I haven't personally been to Daiquiri Timeout. I've heard about it. It's, yeah. you know, legendary. It really is. Yeah. You know, you have Houstonians that will drive all the way to Galveston just to go there. It's me. That's me. <laughs> uh, Sarah's raising her hand right yeah, now. Yeah, I know. Like, Both yeah. hands. So. Yeah. Um, so did you go this past week or? We drove down on Memorial Day and kind of just did a drive all the way down to Surfside. So almost all the way to Freeport in the car and then went back and had a few cocktails at DTO. They were open and have a large patio. And um, so we got to have a couple cocktails and we went to dinner, went to dinner and came home. We didn't even actually go to the beach, but we were just in the city, windows down, cruising all the way past San Luis Pass. So it was really fun. Well, fun. Well, I'm super excited to talk to you because yeah. I think you're one of the best fucking bartenders in the city. Oh. <laughs> and every cocktail you make, I love to drink. And you also bartend and manage at some of my favorite restaurants. So it's like a win-win. I can get my favorite food with my favorite drinks. Yeah. So super stoked. Um, do you want to let the people know where yeah, you work? Um, I'm the bar director for Nobis and the Toasted Coconut in Montrose. Uh, Nobis is a super tight too dark, too loud, too fun, a modern American bistro in a little house, bungalow. Um, we like to not take ourselves too seriously, but serve some of the most banging food and drinks I've ever had that you've ever had. Um, and then Tusta Coconut is your beach vacation in a bar restaurant package. Huge palapa, great tropical drinks, uh, a wide range of like Asian and island inspired food. And, you know, for Toasted Coconut especially, it, I feel like that is one of those restaurant bars um that we're seeing a lot more of this like hybrid concept hybrid. Totally. is it a bar with really good food is it a restaurant with a really focused bar program and i feel like we're seeing more of that over the past like five years or so yeah i love it personally because i love a bar with food and i love a restaurant with great drinks so for me like mm -hmm. a lot of these more kind of riding that line places like blt even eight row flint like I go to those kind of fun, great cocktails, great food, places that are kind of sometimes open later than your average restaurant too. You and I can think about it in terms of like Houston, Houston but when you visit yeah. other markets, do you find that that also is the case? This like increase in like bar restaurant combos? Totally. Like, you know, what's Bacchanal in New Orleans. Yeah. Even, you know, Turkey and the Wolf. 
they are doing crazy cocktails, even though they're just kind of like a little sandwich, dinery, like weird shop, but they have a full cocktail list with fire cocktails. Um, Chicago, we love Parsons Chicken and Fish, which is like an outdoor bar doing like fried chicken, frozen Negronis, some of the like best frozen beverages I've ever had. You know, there's wow. definitely frozen Negronis. That sounds yeah. good. Yeah. On a side note, is there any drink that doesn't work as a frozen drink? Because I wouldn't immediately think to do a Negroni as a frozen drink. No, but... and I think that was, I don't know for sure, but it was kind of like a hybridized Negroni. It wasn't necessarily just Campari, gin, and vermouth. It was maybe like a Spagliato situation. Yeah, there's either, there's some fruit juice, some sweetener. It's kind of like the Frosé thing, right? Where they're adding wine and like strawberry puree to a frozen machine. There has to be, for in order for it to freeze, there has to be some amount of sugar and acid. Just because science. Like I couldn't put, I couldn't put a Duke's martini in, in the frozen machine and it freeze. It'll be real freaking cold. You guys don't have a frozen machine at Toasted Coconut, do you? We do. It hides in the kitchen. Uh, it, oh. it houses our, our house cocktails called the Toasted Coconut. Oh man, I haven't had that one. I always get the sherry tiki drink that you guys have oh, on the menu. I love that one. The low tide. Yeah. Sherry. It's kind of like a low ABV Mai Tai yeah, inspired. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you kind of get the same Mai Tai vibes, but you can drink way more of them because it's most mostly sherry with a small amount of Jamaican rum. There we go. Cool. So for this episode, you know, I want to start it kind of the way we start every episode, which is I love asking people what they've been drinking during the core. What's uh, your beverage routine been like? My So for the most part, Jacob and I are plain alcohol into cup people. Um, he did request banana daiquiris one day. So I did this pretty fun like whiskey and Ray and nephew, which is like an overproof kind of funky Jamaican rum. Uh, daiquiri in the blender with just some stuff I had around the house. Um, but primarily we are gin martinis, which is frozen gin into frozen glass garnished with lemon peel. Easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I kind of lived in that world most of quarantine just because I felt like the creativity of like the, I feel like loss of feeling and excitement of not being behind my bars on a daily basis kind of hindered my creativity. So I wasn't the one who was like inspired to make all these crazy ingredients. So you're back behind the bar yeah. cocktailing. That's got to feel good. That's got to be like refreshing yes. after, you know, months. Not. Of, yeah. Yeah. Because so much of being a good bartender, right, is, you know, the relationships you build with your regulars, right? Exactly. My regulars and my team. And like, that's why I love what I do. I, yes, I love putting, making cocktails and experimenting and tasting and doing all of that. But really, like, it boils down to the interaction with other people. That's why I ended up making the transition from, being a, a cook to a bartender is like that brings me so much joy and passion and providing people with like the most fun experience celebration whatever that's where my passion truly lies maybe we could talk about that a little bit because like the idea that you worked in kitchens and then worked your way from kind of like a cooking perspective into a bartending perspective like what made you want to do that initially yeah I mean I've been working in restaurants since I was 16 since I had a car my dad told me if I got a job in a restaurant, I would always be able to find another job. And he wasn't wrong. I don't think he realized he set me on a path to like what would ultimately <laughs> be my career in life. Like I will live and, and die in a restaurant. I don't want to work anywhere else. I don't want to do anything else. I want to be behind a bar. So ever since then, I've done every single job you could imagine. Hostess, to-go girl, bartender. But it, I bartended at a Tex-Mex place in Austin. I was the daytime bartender. I made 55 gallon, 55 gallon trash cans of margarita for the frozen machine for dollar margarita. Oh day. my like, God. That was my first gig behind a bar. That's um, terrifying. It was terrifying. I look back on that and I'm like, what, what was that? 
Um, but did you guys like make sweet and sour for that? Like, oh, hell no. We heard it no. was all 100% things from a cooler that I put into by it was like a case uh, recipes that were cases. It was like, oh my god, three cases of pasteurized lime juice or whatever. I don't actually remember, but it was wild. Uh, and I don't think then I knew, I definitely did not know how wild that was 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago now, probably. Yeah. But then but, you ended up actually going to culinary school, yeah. right? So I was going to UT at the time and I ended up dropping out of UT because to go to, to go to culinary school because I was finding myself throwing more dinner parties than I was studying for my science classes. For me, culinary school at the time seemed the only real way into a career in hospitality. I think my eyes kind of opened up a lot to other possibilities once I got into once I got back to Houston and got into culinary school and kind of was more involved in the local kind of scene and what was happening. And because you went to you went to culinary school with our mutual homie uh, Michelle Wallace, who works at yeah. Gatlin's Barbecue, right? Yes, yeah. She's yeah, like my ride or die. We did a lot of events together. There's um, a group called Great Chefs Club, and we did a lot of like fun things with that together. And we were in a lot of the same classes. Yeah, I love Michelle. Yeah, she's awesome. Aries gang. She, she's <laughs> she's awesome. She's great. I love her. Shout out Michelle and everything she's doing over at Gatlin's. I know Gatlin's so. is so good. Yeah, great barbecue. So so you go to culinary school, and did you work in restaurants while you were in culinary school, or once you graduated, you kind of went yeah. into restaurants? I was at McCormick and Schmick for a long time. I started there as a server, um, and then once I got into culinary school, I kind of forced my way onto the line there. I just pestered the chef enough till he put me on the salad station, um, and that that was great. That was kind of like my first corporate like more serious restaurant gig was McCormick and Schmick in general so that was uh definitely shaped I think who I am just because it really opened my eyes to what a huge restaurant is like yeah and you know I think you talk to a lot of people and working in those bigger more corporate restaurants yeah. like McCormick and Schmidt or like for me Houston's restaurant right. like you work in those spaces and there's a lot of just like systems in place and yeah. you're able to learn from those. Totally. When I find people have a lot of like chain experience, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It means they, right. they're, they're, they're familiar with systems. They're familiar with some level of organization. So uh, I find that those staff yeah. members are oftentimes the easiest to train because they come yep. from so much structure. Yep. So you're working there, you're making salads. I imagine at a steakhouse salad. like that, a lot of like fucking... Wedge salads, Caesar this, like, salad, shit like lobster that. Lobster cob thing that was like the stack. Oh my god, that we that had to make in like dope. a giant ring mold. I was shucking oysters. Hell yeah, it was fun. I had, I still have friends from McCormick and Schmick days. So, yeah, it's kind of weird to see where where we've all kind of landed. But one of them is Quisha Bird. What Quisha? Quisha. That's crazy. I know Quisha from that time at McCormick and Schmick. Yeah. Back in the Look day. Look at us now. Oh man. Yeah. That's funny. Anyway. For those of you who don't know, Quisha is a very talented, wonderful human bartender who is currently working at Anvil, which is like one of the top cocktail bars in the country. So probably the world. Yeah. And she is anyway. so like friendly and nice. Uh, when she was over at BLT, uh, kind of like the sister bar to Anvil, I was with my aunt who was visiting from out of town and she just like sat down and like hung out and chatted with my aunt. It was great. She's like, that. she's got such a great sense of hospitality. She's yeah, rad. for sure. Um, so then you eventually like jumped from cooking into cocktailing. And I would imagine that, you know, in the same way that like when you're cooking, you have to balance acidity, sweetness, you know, you have to Absolutely. kind of reconcile different flavors. You have to do the same thing in drinks. Yeah, totally. I kind of like to say that I'm just cooking with liquor and liquid ingredients and ice as opposed to solid ingredients and fire, you know, um, balance of flavor is 
most important and one of the most important things of a cocktail, like for me personally. Yeah. What's kind of your methodology when you're R&Ding a cocktail? Do you kind of start with like a base cocktail, like kind of like a benchmark drink and then kind of adapt from there? Or does it start as like a random thing like this liqueur, I want to use it in something. Let me see what I can do. So there, it's totally all of those things. Sometimes it starts from being inspired by a classic cocktail. Sometimes it starts from an ingredient, a seasonal thing, a flavor that I remember. Um, but it, sometimes it starts from a cocktail name. You know, it's like sometimes, and I'm not the only one who will get an idea for a great cocktail name and kind of work backwards. And especially when you're building menus, sometimes for me, naming cocktails is the hardest part. So if I think of a name that I really want to put on a menu, I figure out what style, what base spirit, what is missing from the menu I'm trying to work it into, like how I could make the puzzle piece fit, basically. Um, But inspiration, especially for cocktails, comes from all over, especially food, but sometimes it's a song song name, sometimes it's a line in a movie, you know? And so whether I'm relating the the cocktail back to that in some way, or I just think it's a fun name and want to put a tasty cocktail on it, it it's it all is kind of organic and it just kind of happens. It's weird. So like the C word is a cocktail on the menu <laughs> at Toasted Coconut? That's a Martin Stair original. I take no oh. credit for that. <laughs> it's so funny that like... <laughs> Martin Stair, we should say, is the chef owner of Nobis and Toasted Coconut. Yeah. And he also is has experienced bartending. Chef like bartender. the two, Chef yeah. bartender. Yeah. And Peter Yonke, who is one of the teammates at Toasted Coconut, is also a chef bartender. I secretly think that chefs make the best bartenders. Uh, <laughs> but I have my reasons for that. But yeah, uh, Martin, that's actually Martin's creation. He definitely was kind of playing off the pun there. Um, and it was like a super delicious sour agricole drink with coconut water and lime and mint. Really refreshing. We served it in a young coconut. Um, he likes the punny names for sure. If you've ever been to Nobis, there are puns all over the menu. And you can, that was definitely one of his concoctions. <laughs> Something that I thought would be really fun for us to talk about would be kind of the this idea of tiki because it's obviously something you're super passionate about. I'd love to hear how you got into tiki. And then I thought maybe we could break down kind of the the ideas of tiki, the history of it, and kind of the aesthetic of tiki. But for starters, yeah. how did you get into it? I truthfully got into tiki right here in Houston at our local tiki bar, Lalo. It kind of we always, like I said, have been beach goers, beach enthusiasts. Um, and I kind of realized by going to this brand new bar that opened, I mean, now it's, it's on its sixth year now. So this was a, a while back, um, mm-hmm. that I could have those same experiences and those same feelings and like feel the things that brought me joy about going to Galveston or any beach, um, in a cool, dark little shotgun bar in a strip center in the North Heights, you know? Yeah. Let's paint the picture for people. You go into Lalo and there's like a fucking canoe like parked in front of the building. Yeah. You go inside, dimly lit. You've got all sorts of like tropical, like Ephemera. Polynesian paraphernalia yeah. all over the place. All over. Um, tons of like cool multicolored lights, like the glass ball lights are some of my favorite things about tiki kind of ephemera and decor. And um, when you pull up to the tiki bar, it is a strip center next to a convenience store called Eat at Joe's. Um, and there's like a head shop there now. All you mm-hmm. see is this canoe. Now there's a mural, but before it used to just be a canoe and a neon light above the door that said rum. And you open the door into this like another world, um, mm-hmm. totally like whisked away to a different time and place. It it's really was like taking a trip. For me. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You're like walk out 
from the Houston sidewalk into into an island bar somewhere like kind of non-specific, but you feel like you've been there before and also like you've never been there before. And maybe that's that's something worth talking about because Tiki as a definition, you know, you think of like oceans, you think of beaches, you right. think of like tropical places, but is there any sort of geographical designation there? Like, is it, you know, the Pacific? Is it the Gulf of Mexico? Is it South America? Like, how do we define kind of that beach vibe a little bit? So it definitely started as like, as the South Pacific is places where it basically in the 1930s and then begin in the 1940s and 50s, all of the like, the U.S. involvement in the Pacific theater of World War II kind of is what sparked it all because all of these soldiers are kind of in that kind of Asian Polynesian island part of the country. Um, and they're coming back home after World War II and every and everything's great. And they're kind of missing that escapist thing. They're bringing all of that back. And it's kind of, it's was taken off and started by basically two guys in California who were both like, one was an actual beachcomber, like merchant was hopping from island to island, selling rum, selling whatever, and then came back and um, started opening restaurants and bars that kind of were inspired by his travels um, in Hawaii and the South Pacific. And then the second guy basically just piggybacked off of that and called himself a beach bum, but he actually wasn't beachcomber. He was just a restaurant owner and like he was movie star adjacent. So he had a lot of like famous rich people in his restaurant. And that's kind of what. So we're talking about Don the Beachcomber and Trader, and Vic. Trader Vic. Yeah. yeah. And we should say that Don the Beachcomber was your Halloween costume. Yes. Right? I love dressing up as Don the Beachcomber. Yeah. yeah. I've done I've done Don a couple times, but we did a zombie Halloween party and Krista did my makeup. And so I was zombie Don the Beachcomber. It was hell was yeah. Pretty into it. Yeah. Yeah. So Trader Vic's is a name that I think you know, certainly an older generation, like my parents would refer to Trader Vic's, you know, that was something that was part of their life when right. they lived, you know, in Colorado and they would visit friends in California. Yep. Like they distinctly remember drinking, you know, fog cutters and Mai Tais. I remember being in high school, my parents telling me like, don't drink those drinks because they'll get you really fucked up. <laughs> Happened to us. So like that was a name that even I was aware of before I was conscious of like cocktail yeah. culture. Yeah, or what it was. Yeah, and Trader Vic and Don the Beachcomber are definitely pretty pervescent or like pervasive in the history of tiki and the spread of like the tiki culture but it ultimately started as somebody who wanted to create that escapist like getaway vibe tiki is it's not strictly polynesian it's really something that's more made up it's an american romanticized version of life in a tropical right. area totally so we see kind of that resurgence start to come up in a post-war period and then i feel like about I want to say about 10 years ago, we saw like a big resurgence of yeah. that tiki vibe in the form of like Smuggler's Cove in San Francisco yep. and maybe a couple other tiki bars popping up around the country. A couple places. Do I have Chicago. my history right? Yeah, I think, I mean, as far as I know, yes. I'm definitely not the historian that's like Jeff Barry and even Martin Kadar or even Russell from Lalo. Um, but that's right. Like that's when those kind of places started opening again. And I think they were just started by people who were like Don and Vic. They were just inspired by the flavors, the experiences, the textures, the colors, the everything from that time period. And whether, you know, not that I think Martin Kate was like traveling to the South Pacific and fighting in a war to get that inspiration, but he's still taking it back the same way that those did and bringing their inspiration to their bars and restaurants. And that's kind of what we all do as chefs and restaurateurs. It's bringing our vision to life. 
Totally. So tiki, we've kind of defined it a little bit. We've talked about the history, but the main ingredient that's used in most tiki drinks is rum. And rum totally. is a really challenging ingredient. I come from um, like a sommelier's perspective where right. I'm used to like there being appellations that clearly define like if you put this on a label, it has to mean this. And yeah. with rum, it's kind of like the Wild West. It's totally the Wild West. And like definitely in wine is I feel like the complete opposite. There is it is not the Wild West. There are rules and regulations and even in whiskey, like bourbon and scotch, like and it's it's not with rum, it's not that there's no rules, um, but it's there are no universally accepted rules. So Barbados has rules, Jamaica has rules, Martinique has rules. But that doesn't mean A, everybody making rum on those islands is following them. Um B, it doesn't mean what's on the label is correct. Um, there's a lot of, a lot, there's not enough regulation basically, or, and so there are definitely brands, i.e. Foursquare and Barbados who are trying to push transparency forward. And for me, like I, if you add sugar to the rum, if you dosage, that's fine. I just want to know about it. I don't want you to hide it. Right. And so that's kind of what a lot of like, there's people coming together to kind of try to create like a general labeling and like laws to make it more streamlined and more more transparency totally and have more traction as a category because rum doesn't rum gets a lot of flack for just being like a sugary whatever drink and i think because it doesn't have the requirements of scotch whiskey or of bourbon or even of wine as far as transparency requirements based on what you're putting in the bottle and how you're putting it in the bottle like that just doesn't it's there's not a common thread linking it all together um, so, I mean, without getting like too nitty gritty here, we're talking about rum being a distillate from sugarcane. Yeah. We are distilling the sugarcane juice, and in some cases, we're aging it. In some cases, we're spicing it. Yep. Um, and we're creating a liquor that, you know, will hopefully retain some of the sense of place, right? Totally. And th there's definitely terroir in rum and sugarcane. It's grown all over the world, but rum that's grown in Martinique or made from sugarcane in Martinique does not taste the same way rum in Jamaica does. And part of that is their practices. Some rum is made from just the fresh pressed cane juice. Some is made from molasses or a byproduct of sugar production. So there are places that are producing sugar and rum distilleries are purchasing molasses on a bulk level and then distilling that themselves, aging it how they want or not, um, and putting it into a bottle. And you're now in a position where as the person in charge of the beverage program for your restaurant, you're making decisions where you're meeting with distributors, you're meeting with suppliers, and you're tasting yes. rums. Yes. What's kind of your framework when you are tasting a rum? Like, what are you looking for? And what are the kind of the distinguishing factors that might separate a rum from one part of the world, from another style, from something of high quality, of low quality? Like, what are the parameters that you use for judging a rum? Yeah, for me, um, it's a lot of different things, but I'm looking at how transparent they are in the label, how long they're aging for. If I'm looking for an aged rum, I'm looking for um, not necessarily the biggest producers. You know, not there's absolutely nothing wrong with Bacardi, but they're producing rum on a totally different level than other brands. And so we're focusing on, on some level, smaller producers if we can, and like, shining a light on things on people in places who are doing things correctly and in a unique way and not necessarily just putting bulk molasses in a column still what are are there a couple of like small producers that you know you're really excited about right now yeah i mean Foursquare is definitely pretty high on that list for me which they're 
they're definitely become more well known now because people are figuring out that the juice in their bottles is really great. Um, but they are fully transparent about what they're putting in the bottle, how long they're aging it, in what type of casks, where they're getting it from, if they're dosaging it. Um, and it's kind of it kind of is like goes back to even mezcal and agave for me is they're yeah. giving you all the information you need to know right up front. And I think that's part of the challenge, right? Is that you mentioned it earlier, but there's this perception that rum is an ingredient used in cocktails that's really there for like sugar and for alcohol. And I think it probably goes back to like people's bad experiences on spring break having, you know, Parrot Bay, party 151. Malibu, totally. And 151, like you, 151 is great. And I, I love the Bacardi 151, but you have to know how to use it pro- properly. You shouldn't just be drinking like 151 and Hawaiian punch or whatever. And I think there's that definitely. Wait, so I'm not supposed to be just <laughs> shooting it or having it out of an ice luge? Yeah. You're saying I've been doing it wrong? This, your whole life. My um, whole life. And all of the flavored rums that exist are full of just sugar and um, not real ingredients. And like, you know, a lot of your like coconut rum, pineapple rum, raspberry rum, whatever is full of chemicals and crap and maybe just only the tiniest fraction of sugarcane distillate. And so for me, I'm just looking for brands that aren't doing that. Even if they're a little bit larger scale production and well-known, i.e. Zacapa, Appleton, uh, more household names, but I I just feel like household name rum, the standard is a lot lower than it is for everybody's like whiskey, even vodka household like brands. They're not, they're not picking the Appleton estate. They're not picking the Zacapa Negra off the shelf. They're not picking, you know, some the plantation, plantation. pineapple yeah. or something and like, like that. plantation they're merchant yeah. bottlers which if you merchant bottling is basically like they're buying their own they're buying rum from a merchant seller who's gathering it from different places different distilleries and then plantation is creating their own blends and putting it in a bottle um some oh so kind of like a negotiant yes. model within exactly like the wine world, sometimes right? they're a- aging them further um so but that's kind of cool because plantation has so many different expressions different cask experiments um rum from all over the world and like merchant bottlers get a bad flack but that's how rum used to be sold there used to be only merchant bottling there were very few people Hmm. bottle like producing and bottling their own rum you see that a lot in jamaican rum outside of um appleton and ray and nephew for the most part all of jamaican rum was just going to somebody else and they're putting it in a bottle they were using it as a small fraction in in different blends but now you're seeing brands like worthy park and Hamden Estate who are realizing like that they can put their juice in a bottle with their label on it and sell it and people love it. So something that I think you do at Toasted Coconut really well is you take the elements of tiki but apply it to maybe non-rum based drinks. And I yeah. guess that gets into kind of like the definition of tiki, right? Like does it have to be something made with rum? Can you take the elements of tiki and apply them to something else or at that point is it no longer tiki? For me like when you're looking back through old Trader Vic and Don the Beach recipes, they are primarily rum, but you will you do see cocktails with vodka, a chichi, the port light is a bourbon cocktail, um Saturn is a gin tiki cocktail from the 1950s. Um there's definitely like signs of other spirits being used in tiki back in the old, old days. Um, but it's definitely heavily primarily rum, but they're using what's cool about rum is like I was saying earlier, rum from different places tastes like different places. So there's a lot of chance to like vary and experiment in that way. But for me, I wanted to bring tiki into a more modern kind of 
cocktail bar situation where it doesn't have to necessarily be rum. I love using rum. We use my menu is still predominantly rum, but I'm also showing off things like rye whiskey, aquavit, scotch has a place in cocktail menus. Um, and sometimes it's a blend of both. We were doing a stirred cocktail with rye whiskey and Jamaican rum. And that kind of bridging the gap is, I think, helping take our guests into into a more modern tiki era where they are having balanced drinks that are tropical and still fun and whimsical, but they're not necessarily just a pina colada or a Mai Tai, which trust, those are two of my all-time favorite cocktails. But it's more than that. It's layers of flavor, house-made recipes, tons of juices. It's not, you know, it's not just, it doesn't just have to be, and I don't think in the 1950s they were using the best ingredients, right? They were probably not using fresh lime juice and fresh orange juice just because of availability. Maybe in California they were, but other places they weren't, you know? No, for sure. Um, So it's for me about kind of like picking apart the, the pieces of old recipes and, and utilizing the same, some of the same ingredients, allspice dram, pineapple juice, coconut cream, um, honey syrup, cinnamon syrup, all of those things have a place, but I think they can be kind of utilized and modernized. So do you think that, you know, the aesthetic of tiki is perhaps just as important as like the ingredients themselves when we're talking about using that word to define a drink? Yeah. You know, it's the whole vibe. It's not just the cocktail. It's the entire package. The aesthetic, especially at the toasted coconut was super important um, because of that reason. You want to feel like you're at a beach bar. You want mm-hmm. their lush plants, greenery, tiki tchotchkes. You want to see the ceramic mugs. You want to see the bowl cocktails on fire. You want to see the like little fish tank on the back bar or whatever. Do you um, guys have a fish? We have, it's actually like a, it's fun. It's a battery powered um, jellyfish tank so it like lights up and it looks like there's jellyfish in it but it, they're just it's just okay. plastic and batteries yeah, yeah yeah i i don't know if we could keep a fish alive <laughs> maybe you know i can't speak for other bars i can't speak for your bar but i think about like the build outs for a lot of these I, i'm thinking of places like three dots in a dash in chicago like the the amount of like energy and time and i imagine utility bill associated <laughs> yeah. with running a business like that right like it's insane. Like putting together that vibe that you're describing is unlike almost anything else for any other bar. Right. And because like to really stay, I think, authentic and like kind of true to yourself, you have to do that work yourself. You can't just like buy a tiki bar in a box and bam, you have all your decoration. Sarah, Martin and I and Jacob, we spent countless hours thrifting, shopping, trolling Craigslist, like going all over the city. I spent a bunch of time in Galveston at thrift stores and we still don't have enough decoration for that bar. Like that's one thing about Lalo too, is you could kind of see like six years ago to now they have so much more cool stuff everywhere, but they have like old historical cocktail menus on the wall and like really cool pieces, um, and that bar and like stuff that I could only aspire to have. Um, but to, to make it authentic and real and feel not just like a fake plastic, whatever, you have to do that yourself. And um, for me, that was one of the most fun parts, really. I've always heard about your 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 thrifting for acquiring, you know, new coupe glasses oh, or yeah. it new definitely, bar ingredients. It, the coupe glasses thing started at Nobis. We decided we wanted some vintage glassware for over there. And so I just started going thrift shopping. And that's also kind of where the tiki shirt craze for me happened. I may or may not have like probably 60 tiki shirts or Hawaiian shirts right now. Is there something you look for in your tiki shirts? Like 
either do they have to be made of silk? Do they have to be, you know, cotton? Is so, there like certain brands that you really fuck with um, I prefer, or anything like that? I prefer made in Hawaii, but mm -hmm. that's definitely not what is in the, what makes up the entirety of my collection. I definitely have some like old stock, old Navy shirts and stuff like that in the collection. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's like the color combo and pattern has to just speak yeah. to me more than, more than anything else. Um, but yeah, made in Hawaii is always preferred because that's like the more legit Hawaiian tiki shirts, mm. but I'm not against an old Navy Hawaiian shirt because they make cute ones too. So the Hawaiian shirt that I have, um, is from rain spooner. Oh I've... yeah. Rain spooner. Yeah. That's like, uh, heavily, highly coveted really? uh, brand. I'm pretty sure Sarah got some kids that are one kid size one, like a Christmas rain spooner shirt when we went to Tiki Oasis last year. I'm not sure if either of them were big enough for it yet. So I bet they'll actually both get to wear it. Cause I think <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was still too big for their oldest, oldest child. So hopefully it'll be a good hand me down. Well, that means she can lord it over the kids until then, you know, like yeah, any good mother totally. would. Right. I mean, uh, obviously. Yeah. But something else that you're really, really invested in is kind of like competitive cocktailing, right? Like you're yeah. pretty involved in the organization speed rack, right? Yeah. Um, for all of you out there who don't know what speed rack is, it's a national bartending competition that was started by two women in New York city, um, about 10 years ago now, um, who basically wanted to start this platform to lift women in bartending up onto a pedestal a little bit and show that we can do what other people can do. Because at that time, especially there were very few women working in the, working behind a bar. Um, we were cocktail waitresses and servers, but we weren't bartenders. And so, um, they kind of, put this together to do a charity and uh, bartending competition. And now it's a national and even worldwide competition. They do a new uh, Mexico city, Asia and Australia and a Canada every year now too. Um, wow. So, I didn't know like, they did it outside North America. That's yeah, crazy. They definitely have partners who kind of help, but it's still part of the speed rack family. And so if you're in the hospitality industry, food and beverage, for the most part, you've heard of speed rack. Um, it's, big deal, especially now, even more than it was when they started. So, mm -hmm. so you've been involved in speed rack. I feel like for as long as I've known you in a bartending capacity, because yeah. you started doing it, helping Elise Blackman, who yeah. now lives in New York, shout out Elise, shout out working Elise. for Absolute, right? One of she, I owe so much of my career to her because training with her and she taught me so, so, so much about not just physical bartending, but about hospitality and about how to be part of this world. And I, I don't know what I would do or where I would be without her. So major big shout out big to love. Elise. Yeah. Uh, she is a big person in my life, but yeah, so she was training for, I actually competed the year that she um, won in Houston and oh, cool. went on to nationals. So it first started as us training together. Um, Julie Rogers, who, you know, um, she kind of shout out Julie who also, now works in at light years. In right? wine, now, I know. In wine. She is basically how I got my start in craft bartending. She hired me at cultivar and was basically like, I can teach you everything you need to know about craft bartending. So I also don't know what I'd be doing without her because <laughs> literally she helped me realize what my true passion is, which is being behind a bar. So anyway, a quick side note, I think it's really cool that two of your biggest kind of like mentors within cocktail were both women. I know. Right? I feel very lucky because that's not, that's not the common theme for sure. You know, and that idea of women helping other women move up in an industry that is dominated by a lot of men. Still to this day. And that's what 
speed rack is 100% all about too. That's what all speed rack events are is we are all we all want everybody to win. And obviously, there can only be one winner. But ultimately, until the very last second, we're all hugging and cheering each other on and giving each other advice and tips and tricks and whatever. It seems compared to a lot of other competitions that I'm familiar with in the alcohol world, it seems incredibly celebratory and positive. Um, It's not about necessarily winning. It's about supporting uh, your fellow, you know, sister in arms, you know? Totally. Absolutely. And like the, if you've ever been to a speed rack competition, uh, the energy in the room is indescribable it's everybody is there going crazy and it does it almost doesn't matter who wins right because everybody wants everybody to win and everyone's there to don't raise a ton of money for charity that is really important and have fun and support your industry and the women in your industry in that city and like that the energy alone changed my life for sure so in terms of the logistics of speed rack it's executing classic cocktails in a short amount of time right yeah it's not necessarily about like creating a new drink. It's right. about how quickly can you make this very classic cocktail? Yeah. How quickly and how well can you make a classic cocktail? Um, which is different than most bartending competitions are very heavily based on the creative side, the creating your own cocktail and your own, the story and the presentation and the, all of that. Do you know why that was the goal that they set out to do? Cause it is pretty unique compared to a lot of other like cocktailing right. competitions. I think because they wanted to just show that we have skill and as opposed to like, and we can bang out drinks just like the best of them behind the bar and more than, because you can dawdle over a cocktail spec and a recipe and a conceptual idea forever and especially for those competitions I've done them I toil and toil and toil away but ultimately in this competition it's how fast can you actually do what you're going to do on a real night Friday night behind the bar which is make make cocktails that you already have that you are already have recipes for whether it's classic or whether it's your bar's house cocktails you still have those recipes in the brain and you're just making them quickly in theory so yeah so we get about 80 classic cocktails that we're responsible for knowing, uh, which is, it's interesting because some of their, they say you can take their specs, you can use their specs or not. So I definitely make adjustments because some of their specs maybe aren't what I think is the best version of that cocktail. And so it's up to you to make the best version of a Negroni or the best version of a Jungle Bird, whether you think the recipe they hand you is it or not. When you're working in that competition, what's like your white whale of a cocktail? Like when you're doing a speed rack practice and you have a certain drink that pops up on that list of drinks you have to make where you're just like, oh, fuck, I got to make that. Oh, oh, man, for me, an egg white drink, truthfully, because I feel like as many eggs as I've practiced cracking really quickly, it is the easiest thing. And it is the thing that will like, not stop me in my tracks, but it will definitely disrupt the flow real, real fast. But I also like that's why I crack the egg whites first. If I if there's an egg white cocktail in my in my we call them rounds. So we have to do four at a time. So if an egg white cocktail is in that list, it is the first cocktail I'm making. It is because I want to like deal with that and get the egg in the tin and not mm-hmm. worry about it um, at the beginning before I even touched a bottle of liquor. So yeah. Okay. Second Singapore sling because it has like 17 ingredients. But. <laughs> it goes back to like what you, we were saying at the beginning, like a simple drink, you know, gin in your freezer, yeah. a, a martini just yes. straight out of the bottle. Like there you go. That's all you need. Yep. So is is speed rack still happening this year? Oh, I hope so. As far as I know, yes. I think right now it's still too. They can't reschedule it yet. It's yeah. still too soon for them to get yeah. re, even attempt to reschedule um, an event like that. All of that, like to have 
to have accomplished something, it's hard when you've worked so hard for something and it's just like, you're supposed to be so celebrated and it's supposed to be so fun and like supposed to be so much more than it actually is. It's totally stripped away from you. It's been, it's hard. And I see it all over and like graduates and Jessica and I, and like speed rack. But I have, I'm keeping the faith that we will finish out the season, even if it's not until September, which is kind of what I'm guessing. It's what I'm guessing is that they'll do DC and the finals sometime in the fall, hopefully. So this has been like, I feel like of all my conversations, this was like one of the easiest ones to have. Like, yeah. Um, you're so enthusiastic, so knowledgeable. This has been like super fun. Um, and I can't wait to have one of your cocktails at Toasted Same. Coconut. Same. Well, um, you, we are open from two to 10, seven days a week. So you can come in two for to a few 10, colada. seven days a week. Yeah. And we're patio all, open, patio open, dining room open, but all the staff is wearing masks. We're sanitizing like crazy. We're taking every precaution we can to keep you and our staff safe, um, but still get to feel a little bit of vacation vibes because I know a lot of people's spring breaks and summer vacation plans were put on hold also. And like, so it's nice to be able to kind of stick your, stick your toes in cinnamon cove and have a pina colada. And uh, the bartending team and the chef team are all working on a bunch of new stuff for like whatever grand reopening. I don't think it'll be a party, mm. but like some sort of like, yay, it's kind yeah. of normal. Here's some new dope mm. food and cocktails. So we're all kind of testing stuff so you yeah. can kind of get a sneak peek of new menu items by coming in because we're cha- because we have to reprint menus every day anyway because we're throwing them away after their single use. Um, mm-hmm. It's given us the flexibility to like try out new cocktails. So you might see like a watermelon Ray and mm-hmm. Nephew cocktail uh, on the menu soon that I'm really stoked That's about. Dope. <laughs> so. If people want to follow Toasted Coconut or you on social media, are there any handles you want to throw out there? Yeah. Uh, Toasted Coconut is at gettoastedhtx. And you can find me at on Instagram um, at Bar Chef Trox. So it's B-A-R-C-H-E-F and the first part of my last name, T-R-O-X. Bar Chef, Bar Trox. Chef Trox. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I feel cool. like that's that handle is here to stay. <laughs> that, that's not going anywhere. No. It's fucking rad. Cool. Awesome, cool. dude. Thank you so much. so good. I'll talk to you soon, Chris. Bye. Bye. I really want to thank Sarah for taking the time to chat with me a couple of weeks ago. I'm not lying when I say that Nobis and Toasted Coconut are some of my all-time favorite spots in Houston, so definitely support them by buying a slice of their olive oil cake or their s'mores pie. You can even get it to go. If you liked hearing from Sarah, make sure to subscribe to Buy the Glass so that you never miss an episode. As always, thank you for listening, keep drinking well, and I'll see you next week for another episode.